I am so excited about this interview. So I hope I don't flub it. Please take a seat. So I met Havila, I think it was probably six or so years ago. Uh, I was given a chance to speak at a Langham Partners event in Phoenix, Arizona. And she's one of the, um, like, shining superstars of Langham. What Langham does is they, they work hard on educating, uh, getting PhD-type education, people in the majority world who will continue to live and work and minister and train others in the majority world. And so Havila is one of their superstars because she not only... Uh, well, you'll hear about it, but uh, two of her books that I've got right here, a book on the Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, and a book on Ruth, which she lectured on last night. And I'm eager for you to hear about that and so much more from her. But we're going to start out with the basics. So would you tell everybody a little bit about you and your family and where you're from? Um, good morning, everyone. It's so good to see uh, all this big, full of people. Uh, you know, uh, numbers is something you associate with India, especially. In <laughs> 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 right. So this is really good. Uh, I come from uh, Bangalore in South India. It's a city that I was born in and grew up in, and. Um, I was an only child till the age of about 12, and then we adopted a little boy. Uh, he was about four years old when he came in, and um, I'm married with two grown children. Uh, our son uh, married into the Mumbai, Bombay Jewish community, and uh, uh, they went on to live in Israel for seven years, but just this last year, they've relocated uh, for the long term, and so they brought with them uh, our little five-year-old Natan, uh, so that's the only grandchild I have. Our daughter is uh, married uh, and lives not far from here in Miami. Uh, so that is my family. Oh, huh? two dogs. Uh, <laughs> a, a golden retriever named Rahel and a uh, Doberman Indy uh, crossbreed called Leia, Rahel and Leia. Um, we are, a lot of people in here are dog people. I saw Mike Moriarty up here. Uh, uh, he is a really big dog guy. He used to have a dog that would go to the football games. They would take him to the football games, American football. And there's a kicking tee that, that you put the football on when you're kicking off. And his dog was trained to run out after the kickoff, grab the kicking tea in his mouth and run off to the side. <laughs> so we like dogs. That's yeah, popular. All right. I've put up here a map of India and the surrounding region. Um, you are from Bangalore, as mm -hmm. you call it. Uh, is that the same as Bengaluru? Right. They've been um, uh, particularly patriotic about renaming the cities uh, back to the names that they had before the colonizer changed it all. Uh, so now uh, what was Bombay is Mumbai, what was Madras is Chennai, and what was uh, Bangalore is now Bengaluru. It doesn't stick though. Everybody still says Bangalore. Yeah. <laughs> all right. There, so. There's a little logic to renaming places, you know. Uh, people use the name with the fewer syllables just because we are naturally lazy. So Bengaluru has four syllables, whereas Bangalore can be said actually in two syllables, Bangalore, like that. Huh? Easy, mm -hmm. efficient. Yes, that's the way we are here. The real name for Houston is <laughs> Very few people even know that. Most just call it Houston. Two like syllables, that. you're done. So Mumbai is Bombay, old name Bombay. I, but not as, yes, it's mm -hmm. reading. Uh, Chennai, you mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and to help us orient, because we don't tend to know the other surrounding areas, Sri Lanka is off the coast of India in the south. Right. You've got uh, Pakistan to the northwest, Nepal to the northeast. That's where Kathmandu is. Right. 
Bangladesh, uh, uh, also to the northeast. Mm-hmm. And then uh, from there, you branch out into Iran, Afghanistan, China, and, mm-hmm. and the Far East. Mm-hmm. Myanmar is also quite a close neighbor. Uh, I say that because we get a lot of students from Myanmar to train in our seminary. Okay, and that's over here, uh, old Burma. Burma. Uh, now mm-hmm. Myanmar. Okay, so I got on YouTube and I found a clip of Bangalore so that we can get an idea of what your city looks like. Right. Okay? And you can, uh, we can stop it as we're going along and you can, you can comment like if we see your house. <laughs> okay. So this is your, yeah, does this look familiar to you? Mm, that bridge does, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and these look like uh, government That's buildings. That's the government buildings. And evidently, you, you like, do you ride the train? The metro? Um, no, not much. But it's very useful. Okay. Yeah, see, now you know what I mean about people. Yeah. yeah. Lots of people. You've got pretty parks. These are old British buildings. You got a football club over there. Mm-hmm. And you all drive on the left side of the road because which of the colonizers. The correct, which is the correct side of the road. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, or so the colonizers thought. Um, let's see. Uh, I think this is basically good bit of it. So um, this is where you live? Yes, that's where I live. Okay. Now, let's pause for a moment. Are there a lot of street markets there? Oh, yes. In fact, I think India has the highest number of shops in the world. Uh, and some of the shops can just be a, a large cupboard. Really? You know, the size of. Yeah. So a large cupboard makes a shop. Yeah. Um, and do you it's shop in those shops often? Yeah, these um, these could be uh, places that are selling street food. So it's a cupboard on wheels. So uh, sometimes, yeah, it's wonderful street food you get in Bangalore. Okay, well, let's talk about food for a moment because that's a high priority in my life. Um, what is typical food this morning if you had been home in Bangalore what would you have had for breakfast Uh, I'd have had just boring old oats and milk uh, simply because I'm diabetic but there's a a whole lot of other breakfasts I could have had uh, cooked breakfast uh, including um, my favorite might have been something like a crepe you know the French crepe it's made with rice flour and nice and crisp on the outside and soft and spongy on the inside. A little bit like your Ethiopian injera, okay. something like that. And that comes with a little gravy on the side and filter coffee on the side. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Coffee and crepes. Yeah. That sounds like that could be pretty good. Do you put sweet stuff in there? No, no. This one's a savory. Savory? Mm-hmm. Well, it's not as good as it could be. Um, <laughs> what is the weather like? Bangalore has uh, um, some of the best weather in in the country simply because we uh, are on top of a plateau, the Deccan Plateau. And so because of the altitude, we have moderate temperatures right across the year. We speak in centigrade because of the colonizer. Uh, So it would be about 17, 18 degrees centigrade right now. But we're moving into the summer months. April and May are searing hot. And then the temperature goes up to around 32 degrees centigrade. But then it drops again once the monsoon comes in June. Okay, so uh, centigrade, for those of us who uh, threw the shackles of the colonizer off before (laughs) India did, uh, we we left the colonizers in the 1700s. We use Fahrenheit. So in the summers, it's in the 90s. Mm And mm. in the winters, it, it rarely can, gets below 60, but it's, it's uh, yeah. cooler. Yeah, it, it can go down to 13, 12 night temperatures. Okay, mm. which is in the 50s, I guess. Mm. Um, all right. Uh, uh, in terms of industry, 
I read on the internet that Bangalore is a big internet. Mm-hmm. They, somebody called it the Silicon Valley of mm-hmm. India. Mm-hmm. So you are internet access, you're all over that stuff? All of that, yeah. It's not bad. In fact, uh, wherever I go, uh, if I ever ask for help with my computer, they look at me oddly. Like they're expecting me to fix their computers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, uh, you are a, a Christian. I think um, now within India, we've got uh, a large Hindu presence, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got, uh, are there Muslims in India? Mm-hmm. Uh, I would assume you've got some Buddhists as well. Yes. Um, you've got Christians. Mm-hmm. You've got a, at least a Jewish community. Oh, yes. And are there any other faiths that we're missing, or is it pretty diverse? Uh, it's, it's, it's the cradle of all the major religions in the world, really. Uh, so there's Hinduism, of course, that is uh, millennia old. And there are two reform movements that broke off. Uh, from Hinduism um, in about uh, 300 or so BC. That's uh, Buddhism and another one called Jainism, if you've heard of it. Okay, so those two. And then um, the um, Muslim invasion happened and so we have a, uh, we have Islam. In fact, we have the highest number of Muslims in any country uh, just behind Indonesia. Wow. So that's a very huge Muslim population. Um, uh, in pockets, maybe, uh, not even leaders first. And then, of course, we have Christianity because uh, it goes right back to the first century um, AD when the queen of Syria, who is uh, thought to have converted to Christianity and been enthusiastic about missions, sent out missionaries with the trading ships. And as you saw in the map, the southern bit is a peninsula, and so it has port cities. And so the missionaries came in through the ports. So that was way back um, in uh, the, you know, just after Christ. And so we have a community of the Syrian Orthodox Christians who take great pride in their Christian heritage, going back 2,000 years. And then uh, we had French missionaries in the 16, 1700s. And then, of course, we had the British come uh, 1800s and on. And so Christianity has a big presence in South India, the peninsular bit. And in our country, when we talk about uh, cross-cultural missions, it's about South Indians going up into North India. Uh, yeah, uh, Because the cultures are so different, perhaps. Uh, one reason for that is the Christian ethic that somehow underlies um, uh, at least uh, the urban uh, part of South India because of mission schools and mission hospitals. Yes, yeah, so we have that. So I think I've said all the religions we have. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, it's interesting if you go back to uh, uh, Christ and the birth of Christ, the wise men bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It's a clear indication that there's already a very mm-hmm. ready trade mm-hmm. with the, right. the East. Yeah. And in fact, uh, the Jewish community, they, they largely uh, are in the port towns, in the port cities. Um, uh, some of them pride themselves on having arrived in the days of King Solomon even, or at least after the fall of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. Yeah. So, wow, wow. Mm. So, um, and then there's also, I think, and I'm going back in my brain, I, I didn't refresh on this, but wasn't there an early church tradition that uh, Thomas may have gone to India exactly. uh, yeah, to yeah. do mission work as well, one of the yeah. 12 apostles. Yeah, uh, that's a very strong tradition, and uh, uh, those who are in that tradition are the uh, Marthomites, uh, the, the St. Thomas tradition, and um, he is said to have been martyred in uh, Chennai, yeah. uh, which was Madras. Yeah. Um, okay, so you are, I believe you've told me, a third generation Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, so your parents were Christians, your grandparents were Christians. Um, how did you come to your faith? Uh, right, so um, uh, being an only child, um, I was dragged off to every meeting there was. We, we were in an indigenous um, Christian denomination, uh, which 
had much to do with the brethren tradition brethren uh, yes okay um, and so we uh, so, uh, so wherever my parents went i went so if it was a revival meeting an evangelistic meeting a midweek meeting uh, yeah I, i attended all of these and especially at these gospel meetings whenever the preacher said um, you know put up your hands if you want to believe in jesus i put my hands up from the time i knew how to put a hand up really and uh, i had done this so often uh, but the fear of being left behind was a big one you know the brethren tend to preach the fire and brimstone type gospel yeah so uh, i was a little nervous about god and uh, the idea that he might come any time in the middle of the night and i'd be left behind oh that uh, was something i was terrified of sometimes i try to stay awake at night just to watch for you know if he was going to be coming yeah but when i was 12 and this was a gospel meeting again somebody was preaching from hebrews 2 uh, isn't it where it says uh, how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation and said escape escape is uh, uh definitely uh, what i want to do so i put my hand up and i said jesus this is the last time i'm putting my hand up and this is it and then i wrote it down in my bible and i think that's how i um, became a christian uh, uh, and then it was a couple of years uh, that was when i was 12 and so it was about 6 years uh, before i was baptized the believers uh, baptism and um, it's been up and down but uh, yeah it's been a journey uh, getting to know the lord better and to learn to love jesus more and more So I'm interested in in how you got where you are today because you where, where did you go to college when you when you first went to college hmm. the um, first master's degree I have is a degree in biochemistry so okay. I went the sciences route uh, because my parents were persuaded that there was no money in pursuing the liberal arts or the humanities uh, so I went the sciences route and i actually taught chemistry to uh, uh 17 to 18 year olds we would call yeah. them seniors in high school exactly yes okay so i got to teach these uh, sharp uh, uh, fun teenagers for about a decade or more and i was teaching chemistry remember so uh, i began to be weary of chemistry because sciences really wasn't my thing anyway if i could have done something else it would have probably been english literature and so then um i began to hear that uh, there were places you could actually study old testament um do you want me to say how i yeah it's yeah. yours yeah when i was about 10 remember i was being hauled off to all these meetings i used to go to this midweek uh, bible study meeting in church where there was this really wonderful uh, bible expositor who was doing exodus not just the fun part the movie parts of exodus you know this is after pharaoh and all those things have happened you get into the second part of exodus and it's all about tabernacle construction and what not but he made it come alive in such a way that i thought to myself hmm if i could do this you know study this in college how fun that would be but i didn't know then um, when i was um, 12 i didn't know that there were bible colleges I, i didn't know you could study this and and devote your whole life to it i didn't know that in fact that evening i remember when the bible expositor said now are there any questions uh, i put up my hand and i asked a question and when i went home my father said never do that again women are not allowed to speak in church he said uh, in fact the bible says if you have questions you should ask your husband at home and i'm Now thinking you're 10 years old uh and i'm thinking it's going to be a long time i better write it down so <laughs> uh and so that's uh, that's how i got interested in the old testament but i never imagined that there would be an opportunity to uh, learn it or even to teach it uh but after i had done chemistry for about 10 years and I'm, i i began to be aware that there were excellent bible colleges uh, seminaries in my town bangalore and then uh, with the encouragement of my husband wonderful man uh, and my uh, mother i uh, got into bible college uh, by this time my father didn't mind too much i don't think <laughs> <laughs> 
He loosened up a yeah, little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how I went on to do an MA in uh, Christian studies, and then uh, I went on to do a PhD in Old Testament uh, in the University of Durham in the UK because of uh, support from an organization called the Langham Partnership. I'm a Langham scholar, and I'm so grateful to them. Uh, and actually, I should say a little um, anecdote there. The first time uh, I put in my application, uh, Langham Partnership UK had exhausted all its uh, funds, uh, allocated all its funds, and didn't have space for me. And then it was a month later, they wrote to me and said, no, 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 I think uh, we can sponsor you this year because there's some money that's coming from America, so I will never forget it. It was the generosity of people in this country that made my PhD possible. Oh. Uh, well, we were glad to do it. <laughs> Not that we did it, but uh, yeah. we'll take all the credit. I think it was this class's contribution to <laughs> Langham Partnership. Um, uh, so you have this, – this is interesting. You learned Hebrew as an adult. Mm-hmm. That's hard to do. Mm, and I can't say, uh, yeah, I wish I'd learned it when I was younger because I came to theological education as almost a second career. So that was uh, in my mid-30s. Uh, so I've always been envious of those who did nothing but theology right through and didn't get distracted by biochemistry. I've been a bit envious about them. But I think uh, just teaching all those sharp-minded uh, teenagers... Um, I think brings something to how I approach teaching itself and what I do in the classroom. And so I'm grateful to God. Uh, nothing ever is without purpose in our lives, I think. Mm. And, and that's, that's wonderful. Um, I was 17 when I started studying Hebrew. See, I envy you. Uh, don't envy me because your Hebrew is so much better than mine ever was. Uh, um, I was thinking last night, so I was 18 when I first translated Ruth. And as you were talking last night, I was thinking that was, uh, I think that was uh, uh, right after our first year. Ruth is what, we, Ruth and the Joseph story were the two that we came right out and, and went after. Um, the, uh, but, but you have just done so well. So you go to the University of Durham. Had you been to the un- to England before? No, to no, the no. The, when I flew out to do my PhD, that's the first time I ever got on a plane and left the country. Wow. Mm. And am I rude if I ask you how old you were? Uh, 34, I must have been then. 34. It was a mid, mid-career shift, yeah. Did you eat fish and chips while you were there? Oh, yes. Actually, the culture does, didn't bother me too much, you know, because I grew up in a... I, I was educated in a mission school, uh, so we read nothing but British fiction, uh, right from children's fiction on. So there wasn't a culture shock or anything. It was just that I expected everybody to speak in the BBC accent, and it was a horrible shock, especially when I went off into the northeast of England and heard Geordie. I said, my goodness, is this even English? Yeah, that's what I say when I come to America also, but yeah. Yeah, we, we have a pretty bad accent here. And uh, um, I mean, my wife and I will watch a lot of British TV. And if we watch the shows that are from the north, from like Yorkshire North and into Scotland, we have to have the English on exactly. down below. Exactly, the subtitles. Yeah. Uh, uh, we, yeah. we can't do it without. Um, so you got, what made you get your... Ph.D. in Old Testament studies. Why Old Testament? Right. So that goes back to when I was 10, 12, and I was uh, attending those midweek uh, Bible studies. You never know where, you know, those uh, interests are going to take you. At age 10, it, it probably was just a, 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 a wish, uh, not even a prayer, just a wish. And I thought, I wish I could do this. And it's amazing how God brings things around in your life so as to make even your wishes come true, you know, he doesn't need us to be uh, kneeling and clutching our hands and, uh, you know, uh, praying desperately about anything. He listens to even our wishes. Uh, uh, I'm sensitive to that. Our daughter, Gracie. Gracie, are you in here? Gracie, would you stand up? This is our daughter, Gracie. Is she standing up? Our daughter, Gracie, wished that she had a child. She wished that she had a child. And she's about two months from having four children under the age of four all at once. 
she has uh, the baby Zoe in her stomach, and she's got uh, uh, three other kids that are in the nursery right now, twin girls that are 20 months old and a three-year-old. And, and God hears our wishes and our prayers and answers in abundance at times. Um, I want to transition and I want to take advantage of your knowledge and how you've grown in the Lord. And I want to talk about some scriptures with you and then I want to, to hear some words of encouragement from you. Uh, you do teach at a college right now. Would you tell us about your job right now? Right. I teach in a college set in some very beautiful grounds. Um, it's called the South Asia Institute of Advanced Christian Studies. Advanced because we uh, uh, um, fill a niche. We do only master's level education. So we have the MA and then we have the THM. And then our niche really is the doctoral programs that we do. We do a demon and then we do PhD as well. Uh, so the, the smaller Bible colleges uh, that do bachelor's level education are our feeders. Uh, what's really fun about uh, the place in which I minister uh, through teaching uh, is that we are a trainer of trainers. So the students who come to us mostly are mature students, um, people who um, are already serving out there either in the mission field or in other seminaries at, you know, mid-level, um, leadership levels, um, uh, pastors, Bible trans those who want to be Bible translators. So churches uh, sponsor and um, organizations sponsor them to come to us. And so... Um, uh, the work we do in equipping these people for this uh, gamut of uh, ministry uh, is extremely rewarding because you can see the results of it almost immediately. Uh, with teaching, for example, 60% of our graduates go off to teach in other Bible colleges, uh, maybe at the bachelor's level. And within a couple of years, even within three or four years of that, uh, those students may come to us at SACS for a higher degree. And uh, so I've uh, met sometimes uh, a new student who's come up to me and said, Oh, uh, ma'am, you teach just like my teacher back in um, wherever he, um, whichever seminary they came from. And I'm thinking, hmm, that's because your teacher was my student. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I call them my grand students, and I have so many of them, and I rejoice that within maybe another five years, I might even have great grand students. Uh, yeah, so it, 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 it gives you so much satisfaction to be able to see your work being replicated across all the corners of that great big country, which really is a subcontinent. Uh, so our alumni are going off into uh, Islamic context, into uh, Buddhist context. Yeah, because we have people serving even in Thailand and beyond. Uh, so it is a replicative work. Uh, it has a reach beyond what I can humanly achieve, uh, simply because the work multiplies through uh, our graduates every year. I'm going to brag on you for a moment. She served for a period of time on the translation committee of the NIV. So uh, if you've got an NIV, you are also sort of great, great, grandchildren, <laughs> students, uh, uh, at least uh, the effects of, of all that you've done. Okay, so on our panel discussion Friday, you mentioned something that I want to um, talk about. You said, you asked the question, in weddings in the United States, do people ever reference the Genesis passage that the two shall become one flesh? And I said, yes, they do. And uh, you then said that sometimes that there's a depth and a level of understanding that uh, we may miss out if we just understand it by reading it with Western eyes. And uh, I would love for you to walk through that with us and give me a chance to work through it with you in a little more detail. So, 
Um, why don't you, I'll put it up here for us to look at, and why don't you walk us through what, and, and I'll back up and say this. One of the biggest problems, this is so important, I'm standing up. One of the biggest, uh, problem may not be the right word, but one of the biggest um, impediments to us more deeply understanding Scripture is we tend to read it with our 21st century Western mindset. And so many of these passages are so alien to a 21st century Western mindset. Rabbinical thought at the time of Jesus is in some ways so alien to the way we think that we run the risk of missing some of the depth of what's in the material. Uh, uh, I think even before we get here, a classic example is the John 3.16 passage you talked about yesterday. So why don't we start with that, and then we'll go to the Genesis 2. Right. Uh, John 3.16 is what they call a, a hot-button text. And so Bible translators, I know um, the NIV uh, was, um, Bible translators are a little cautious about... Um, uh, rewording uh, John 3.16 as we've received it through the King James family which is God so loved the world um, I'm no Greek scholar but uh, the Greek uh, apparently is in favor of uh, putting it like this this is the way in which God loved the world This that he gave his only begotten son this is the way. So the so over there is not uh, indicative of degree. You know, God so loved the world, but it is God does love the world. And this is um, uh, something that's passed on to us uh, who haven't been sensitive to the way English words change in meaning across the centuries. So this has come to us from the King James family of um, uh, versions. And so you will find that with more current translations, maybe the NET or the NLT, you'll have to look it up. The more current translations will say, this is the way in which God loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. And you should read the context before and after to figure, yeah, where is John 3.16? What is the... Yeah, oh, yeah, so the English Standard Version, for example, which is, is what I typically will teach out of, is that God so loved the world because they don't want to change that language that everybody grew up and memorized. But they'll drop this footnote. And that footnote 7 will say down at the bottom, or... For this is how God loved the world. Yes. So the so is not a so like a so much. The so is in this manner. And, and they're trying to make that point without everybody saying we're never going to buy that translation because they messed up the most important verse in the Bible, <laughs> um, which is yeah. the predicament that they're in. Yeah. So within a framework of that, I'd love for you to talk to us about the Genesis 2 passage. Right. Um, the Genesis 2 passage. Uh, I asked uh, at the panel uh, the other day, uh, when this uh, text is preached at weddings, you know, uh, the two shall become one flesh, um, what is the usual exposition on it? And Mark, you said... Um, so I think that when this is used in weddings, and, and I'd be interested to know your experience, but my experience has been that there are usually two ideas that are expressed. One idea is uh, it's an expression of the sexual union between the two becoming one flesh. And the other idea is that it is a knitting of the hearts together so that, um, as Bob Dylan said, you are the other half of what I am, you're the missing piece, you, you know, together we make one uh, type expression. Um, setting aside whether or not Bob Dylan made sense, uh, which was a 
appropriate question you ask. Um, <laughs> the, uh, 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 the import of this verse is actually found within the context if we look a little mm-hmm. bit deeper. Mm-hmm. So take us through it. Right. Uh, I'm not um, totally setting aside those uh, interpretations. We hear them all the time at Indian weddings. And the Bible is layered enough to accommodate that because, you know, the earlier part of the story is of God looking at this first male human and saying it is not good that he should be alone. So these senses do come in. Um, That's all right. But what might be the primary sense of this text? And for any text, you first look at the context, the literary context, what's before it, what's after it, to make sense of it, to follow the thought of the narrator, the author, You look at what goes before it and after it. I mean, that's what you do in a newspaper or in any communication. You won't read just a line and say, oh, well, this is what it means. If you're wanting to know what it means, you read the paragraph before and the paragraph after. So we must do that with the uh, biblical text as well. So now, flesh. Uh, The word flesh occurs in the verse just previous. And that's a little poem that the man puts out when he sees the woman. The man said, verse 23, This now is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why, and now the narrator steps back from the narrative. He almost freezes the narrative and steps out. We call it breaking frame. So he steps out and then makes a prescription to his readers. This is why, he says, A man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Why? Because of the poem that precedes it. Because of what the man said. He said this now is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now this is uh, a clearly idiomatic language. There is a certain literalness to it, of course, because uh, the construction of the woman was uh, through the taking of a rib, all of that. Uh, but it is a Hebrew idiom that occurs in other texts as well. And so we track the idiom first across the Old Testament and we find it's uh, quite frequent. Uh, For example, it's going to come in another story in Genesis. This is where Jacob is fleeing from his twin brother Esau and lands up back in Mesopotamia at the doors of uh, his mother's brother, his uncle, Laban. And when Laban opens the doors and meets his uh, nephew, hasn't seen him ever, uh, he says to Jacob, well, you're welcome to come stay with me. You are, and the same idiom comes up. The idiom is bone and flesh. You are my bone and flesh. In, in English, in the NIV, for example, you have it rendered into the English idiom, which is flesh and blood the same thing, flesh and blood, bone and flesh in the Hebrew. You are my bone and flesh, says um, Laban Laban, to his uh, nephew, Jacob. And then in the book of Judges, um, there is uh, someone we um, might not be too familiar with, Gideon's son, a certain Abimelech, who is trying to gather votes and make himself king somewhere. So he goes off to his maternal um, uh, uh, town, of Shechem, and he says to the people of Shechem, make me king over you, am I not your bone and flesh, he says. Uh, Another place could be when David is already crowned king over Judah, uh, seven years have lapsed, and now the northern tribes come to him and say, come, be our king also, because you are our bone and flesh. Um, So now, Uh, Think about the parties in all these examples I gave you. The two parties are male. Yeah? And it's quite different from, uh, well, um, this particular context, which is a marriage context, a man and his wife. Those are male parties. What we're talking about when we talk about bone and flesh, or flesh and blood, is kinship relationships and kinship obligations. This is big. This has a very high value in collectivist uh, societies, uh, societies uh, which uh, place a high value on community and the opposite of uh, individualistic. 
Um, so, uh, as I explained, that is why um, it's because of kinship obligations uh, that you have so many Indians in America. Because uh, the man who first comes here is now obliged to his kin to bring them all over to this uh, land of uh, milk and honey. Yeah? Mm. Sure. Uh, so he's obliged to any brothers or sisters he might have. He's obliged to the children of his brothers and sisters and their second cousins and their pet dogs. And, you know, it just goes on like that. Uh, so uh, kinship obligations are really very high. And so that's why when um, a woman uh, is married, she comes into uh, this household of her husband as an outsider. Uh, uh, an Indian mother um, is very likely to say to her newly married son, and you're listening to uh, what this wife tells you, and how long have you known her? Three months? Me? Have I not borne you in my belly for nine months and then clothed you and fed you for 27 years? You see, so that's, that's the competition. The Incoming woman is always the outsider. She is from another family. Uh, she is not blood. She is not kin. And so that is where this text is now so countercultural. It's a, it's a, it's a shock, uh, even. It's saying, once you're married, it's addressing the man, um, because we're talking about patriarchal systems here. Uh, it's saying to the man, reorganize your kinship or, uh, obligations. Who's sitting at the top of that pyramid of obligations? It's usually the patriarch of the family, the father, maybe an older brother. Uh, so that's not who your primary obligation should now be directed at. Revise that hierarchy. Who sits at the top of that pyramid now? Not even the father and the mother. It's the wife. That, that, that's, that's something the Indian mind, you know, uh, uh, really struggles to wrap its uh, head around. So uh, that's how countercultural this text is. It's talking about kinship ob obligations and it's asking that the man reorganize his priorities uh, totally uh, so as to make his wife, who is usually culturally the outsider, the other, to make her his primary kin. Mm. Okay. All the women are clapping. <laughs> um, primary kin. Well, the reason I wanted us to talk about this a little bit more today is because when Paul, who certainly understood his scriptures, well, when Paul writes to the Ephesians about wives and husbands, he quotes this passage out of Genesis 2. He quotes the passage where it says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then having quoted this, adds this mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, in addition, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So Paul takes this idea that you've got and says the outsider woman who's now fully in community and fully in kinship in a primary role in the family is what the church has become to the family of God through Christ and that Christ has taken on that primary responsible role for seeing that we as the bride of Christ are fully in kinship and community with God and his mm -hmm. kingdom and understanding the greater depth of the Genesis passage ought to really confirm the love that Christ has for you and the love that he has for me and his desire to see us made into something brand new that we would never be a part of 
if he had not done the work necessary. Fair? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, look, this is so much fun. We could, we could do this all day long. We've got seven more minutes. So here's what I'd like to do. Uh, I, I'd love some encouragement from you for us, but is there a way you could give us maybe one more passage that perhaps you have got some insight into that, that we might be missing? Is there another passage that... Mm. This comes out of a small conversation I had after the lecture last night with someone uh, who came up to me. So I thought maybe it's worth looking at that. Um, Where should I turn? Uh, let's see. Uh, 1 Kings uh, 18. 1 Kings 18. Now, 1 Kings 18 is set in the times of King Ahab and his... Uh, Phoenician wife uh, Jezebel who has imported the worship of Baal into uh, Israel and is serious about stamping out the worship of Yahweh in favor of the worship of Baal. So in this climate of persecution, severe and intense persecution, systematic persecution even because Jezebel is killing off all the prophets one by one. She has a hit list that she's working through. Uh, so in this climate of persecution, there is a certain Obadiah who is uh, in service to Ahab who has quietly uh, smuggled a hundred prophets. This is 1 Kings 18.4. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves. 50 in each, and had supplied them with food and water. And then in the chapter just previous, in chapter 17, in the same climate of persecution, Elijah, who has just now appeared before Ahab and said, there's not going to be any more rain. I mean, after that, you can't expect to live. God's commanded him to hide himself, uh, here it is, in 17.3, leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kerith ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So um, the expectation in persecution is that the Christian must stand up and let himself be counted. And if his head is going to get chopped off simply because he stood up, so be it. He is a martyr for Christ. I mean, we have these beautiful stories of martyrdom uh, of the martyrs that have come down to us uh, down the millennia, and we rejoice in them. Uh, I come from a country in which right now it's uh, putting your life at risk to uh, stand up and resist in some places much more than others. And um, I think we're going to... Um, have to continue in this situation uh, for some time in the future. And so I, I want uh, us to be sensitive uh, to the fact that in the Bible, um, uh, the one who is faithful to the Lord is not always asked to stand up and let his head be chopped off. We might think that that is the more Christian way, the more biblical way, and that is the way uh, God wants in every situation. That's not so. There were prophets that were hidden in caves. There was Elijah himself that was asked to go and hide himself by the river Kerit on the other side of the Jordan. And then in the rest of the chapter, he's asked to even leave the country to go somewhere else up north and uh, tied over this uh, period of persecution. So there is uh, both fight mode and flight mode, and um, uh, neither uh, of them is superior to the other, or more to be um, commended than the other. Elijah himself is going to go into the fight mode in chapter 18, and the second half of chapter 18, where he's going to call for that uh, contest on Mount Carmel, and he's going to stand up there to be counted. Uh, but there is a place for both. And so when we meet new uh, believers or even seekers uh, who are from a different uh, faith background, whether Islamic or Hindu, uh, it might not be necessary for us to say, all right, now forsake your family, uh, especially if uh, they are posing any opposition to you becoming a Christian. No, no, don't don't uh, 
uh, encourage people to burn bridges. That is a poor testimony. It is possible to, to have other modes of being other than the fight mode. Yeah, to, to, to uh, stay in the family, in your birth family, and be a testimony where you are in a quiet and gentle uh, way is possibly uh, more persuasive um, in terms of the gospel than, you know, uh, to say I'm leaving home and I'm going where um, my new community is. Um, so that's uh, something that I thought might be helpful. That's a great example. Especially in a country where, well, we, I don't think we know religious persecution as severely as in other parts of the world. Yeah, so um, I, I would, I, I listen to you and I, I think in terms of my own life, um, it, there, there are, uh, <laughs> I was visiting yesterday afternoon with a gentleman who's, who's going to be preaching in the next hour. And uh, we were talking about a certain experience that he had had in his faith walk. And I had not had that experience. And he said to me, he said, you know, I think if you, you tend to talk so openly about what you experience that if you had had my experience, you would tell everybody and you would lose your ministry. And he said, so I think God keeps you from that because he wants you in this place doing this at this time. And when he was talking, I was thinking in terms of, of law. And there, there are times where I can speak out in the legal community about my faith and, and have a very positive effect. But there are times where I'm just quiet and, and I bide my time and I look for the time to speak and pray that I'll speak boldly at the right time. Right. But I also recognize that there are times where I don't need to be putting everybody's face in it. I need to just let them be. Yeah. Um, and we remember uh, the same of Jesus where he, there are times when he tells the people he has healed not to speak about it because the time has not yet come for it to be revealed. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. It's not all just simple one, two, threes. Life is a lot more complicated and, and to listen to the Spirit, to pray for discernment, it's all part of growing up in the Lord, I guess. It's great. All right, would you join me in thanking Havila for her time today? I, I know that a number of you will want to say hi to her and greet her, but let's be sensitive that there is a class that starts here in about 15 minutes or so. Uh, I'll bless you and then uh, we are through. Uh, Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask your blessings on our presence. And I thank you for Havila and I thank you for her ministry and her outreach and the way she is rearing generations to, to better understand you and to better guide and lead people in following you. Uh, it is our prayer that she has safe travels back uh, today and that you be with her till she gets uh, home, and of course even afterwards, but keep her safe. And we thank you for this time that we've had with her, and what a blessing she is. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.